morning and welcome to Connecting Point Online. Uh, we're launching into a brand new series today that we're calling Legendary. And uh, for the next several weeks, actually this series is going to take us all the way through summer, we're going to be looking at some of the legendary stories of the Bible. And I, I love the, the tagline of this uh, series is common people in the hands of an uncommon God. And the Bible is full of stories of people like that, you know, stories of people like uh, Noah and Moses and Abraham and Esther and Daniel and uh, on and on and on full of stories. And so uh, those are the stories we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. And our goal is that as we look at these individual stories and the individual lives of those involved in the stories that will gain a new understanding, not only of the context of what they were experiencing at the time, but also uh, the ways that God worked in their individual lives and the way that they responded to God. And the goal is that hopefully uh, we'll have some principles that we can apply to our life in our time now. And so that's the overarching uh, kind of theme or, of, the, of the series. And the first story that I I want to look at today is found in uh, the very first book of the Bible. So it ought to be pretty easy to find in the book of Genesis. And uh, this particular story, it centers around a guy by the name of Noah. It's a story that probably most of us are pretty familiar with, but Noah is this guy who he's living in this point of history where things have just kind of got crazy. I mean, it's gotten out of hand, and uh, the, the world is full of sin and evil, and it's gotten so crazy, in fact, that God gets to the point where he, he begins to regret the fact that he created everything to begin with. And, and in the midst of this sinfulness, in the midst of this craziness, there's this one guy, Noah, who emerges as someone who catches the eye of God. And again, we all know the story that God winds up using Noah to actually preserve the entire human race. And so if it weren't for Noah, none of us would be here. So we all owe Noah a debt of gratitude. Uh, but I, I want to I look at this story because I think it offers us some great guidance of, as how we as the people of God, how we should respond, what we should do when the world we live in has gotten kind of crazy. And come on, this world we live in, it is crazy. I mean, we use this word over and over again, unprecedented. We're living in unprecedented times and things are crazy. And, and so um, we live in a world where, where people have little or no regard for God. And so how do we respond? in that. So that's kind of the introduction, and I want to jump right into the story. Again, it's found in Genesis. Uh, we're, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 6, beginning with, with verse 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I want to pause right there for a moment. This story, as it begins, it begins with a pretty damning report, right? I mean, things are pretty bad. You think things are bad now. Things in Noah's day, they were really bad. I want you to listen to the language that is used here. It is so absolute. It says that every intention and every thought of every human heart was only evil all the time. And so not some of the intentions or some of the th thoughts, but every thought, every intention was evil 
all the time. I mean, things are bad. It goes on in verse six. It says that it is so evil that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so right out of the chute, that God paints this very dark picture of the, of the present reality, right? I mean, things are bad. People have become so evil that God actually begins to regret the fact that he had created all of this from the first place. But in the midst of all of the darkness, there is a bright spot that emerges. In the midst of all of the bad stuff, we're told that God sees not only that, not just the things that make him go, man, why did I create all this stuff to begin with, but he also sees Noah. Let that be a great encouragement to you today. Because regardless of what's taking place around you, when the entire world seems like it's out of control and everything has gone mad, I want you to understand this morning that God sees you. God sees what's happening. I talked a little bit about this this past week in one of my Facebook devotionals, but one of my favorite names for God is the name El Roi. It's a name that translated means God sees. He is the God who sees me, which sometimes we need to be reminded of that because the reality is that for all of us, when life gets out of hand and when things in the world are falling apart, we all have the tendency to question, God, are you seeing what's happening down here? Do you see all of this? Sometimes we wonder, hey God, do you not see the racism that still exists in this world? Do you not see the violence that takes place in this world? God, do you not see this COVID-19 thing? Do, do you not see what's happening with our political system, with the economy? God, do you not see what's happening in my own life? With my own health, with my finances, with my relationships, God, do you see all of this? Listen, one of the things we can take from this story is it's saying that God does see. And not only is he aware of the actions and activities of humankind, but he also knows our motives and our intentions. This is what it says. He knows the thoughts. And so, you know, it's not, it's not just that God is limited to just observing the activities on planet Earth. But he also can see into and understand the thoughts and the motives of every human being. In other words, he has a, a very thorough understanding of socially the big picture of what's taking place, but also individually what is happening inside the heart of every individual. And, and so God's response, as he sees the actions and the intentions and the thoughts, his response is kind of mind-blowing. It goes on, it says, that The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now I want to I just take a moment to unpack this just a little bit. Because this is, this is kind of a weird thing when you think about it. 
I mean, when you think about God theologically, one of the things that we know about God is that he is omniscient. He's omniscient. That's a theological word that simply means he knows everything. And so if God knows everything, that means that one of the things that he knows is the future, right? So so track with me on this. When God created the heavens and the earth, when he created humankind, because he is omniscient, because he knows everything, because he can see into the future, he already knew all of the possibilities of what could happen, right? I mean, he knew, depending on what choice Adam and Eve would make, he knew what all of the consequences would be. He, he knew that, that if sin were allowed into the picture, how that would cause society to, de- to denigrate, to fall apart, to become so bad. And yet, knowing all of that, he creates humanity anyway. And, and, and then, when we do what he knew from the beginning we had the potential to do, rather than being like, well, I knew that was gonna happen. In fact, I was kind of expecting it. Instead, it says that his heart is still moved with grief. Okay, this is just kind of like, whoa. I mean, I mean God, if, if you knew, then why didn't you just stop the whole thing? I mean, why didn't you skip the whole thing? I mean, if, if you knew, then why did you actually go through with all of this, knowing the potential of what was likely to happen? That's a big theological question. It's a big question, but I think the answer is, is pretty simple. The, the answer is that, that God's deepest desire is that, that he has always wanted to share his glory and his goodness and to expand that into people. His his children, which he calls his family, his children. This is the biggest theme in scripture. That that God the Father, he wants children. Children who will inherit his character, who will be a reflection of who he is. Children who will reflect his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness. And listen, the only way that that can happen on a genuine level is through real relationship. Now listen, we know this, right? The only way to have real relationship is there has to be a real free choice. I mean, it can never be real if it's forced, right? And because God wanted real, when he created human beings, he gave them the real ability to choose, which was so risky on God's part. I mean, if I were God, I don't think I would have taken that risk. But because God loves us, he said, I am creating human beings so that they can be in a genuine relationship with each other and be a family, and there can be enjoyment in that relationship between them with each other and them with me. And so he created us with the real possibility that we would reject him and all that he is. And instead of forcing us to be kind and loving, he actually gave us the freedom to choose. We could choose. If we wanted, we could choose to be a reflection of our Father, kind and loving and generous. Or 
We could choose to be selfish and cruel and horrible to each other. Which if you haven't figured this out yet, human beings have a tendency to do. Now in the end, we all know that whatever our choice, there's gonna be an accounting. And in the days of Noah, there certainly was an accounting in a very practical way in the deluge of water. Now, that wasn't just for them. Someday, every single one of us will give an account, right? How did you choose to live your life? And so this is how God set it up. If you're tempted to think, you know, God is indifferent, you know, he just is indifferent when it comes to the things that are happening in the world, all the evil in the world. Let me assure you, straight from this passage of scripture, God is anything but indifferent. He sees and he is grieved by what is taking place. And the truth is that there are things that happen on this earth that ought to grieve our hearts as well. If you want to say amen right there, that's a good place to say amen. There are, there are things that happen on this planet that ought to grieve our hearts. They grieve the heart of our heavenly Father, and they ought to grieve us as well. I mean, when you see things like what has just taken place in southern Georgia with the tragic murder of Ahmad Arbery, when we see things like discrimination and racism, when we see injustice, when, when horrible things are done, and when those who are weak and vulnerable are taken advantage of, understand God not only sees, but his heart is grieved. And ours ought to grieve as well. And make no mistake about it, there will come a time of reckoning. There will come a time when all things are set right. But thankfully, because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy, he is patient in his judgment. The Bible says that God is not slow, as some understand slowness, but instead God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but instead wanting all to come to repentance. And so if you're tempted to think, God, why don't you deal with this right now? The answer is because God is patient and he's merciful. And listen, I don't know about you, but I personally am glad that instead of God instantly passing judgment upon me the moment I sin, that God in his mercy has given me ample opportunity to repent. I, I, I think, you know, the thing is, we want swift judgment only when it pertains to other people. When for us, we like grace and we like mercy, right? But I, but I want you to make no mistake about it. There will come a day. God, God is not slow as we perceive slow. He's patient, but there will come a day when every single one of us, we will give an account. But in the meantime, God allows things because he wants real relationship. And so he extends his grace and his mercy to people, which, which not only uh, results in real benefits, but please understand this, it also results in real consequences too. You, you see, folks, 
there is a very real danger that if we reject his grace, there is a very real danger when we interpret his kindness as apathy or indifference, there is a danger for us when we go there. Eventually, we're all gonna stand in front of God who not only sees our actions, but he also knows our motives and he knows our thoughts, which is a beautiful thing. But come on, it's a scary thing as well. Let's read on, verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Okay, so the story begins with a pretty damning report. This is where the story turns. First, you know, the scene is set up. It's bad. It's really bad. God is grieved, and he says, you know what? I've had it. This is enough. I I wish I would have never created humanity. And then Noah, this one guy, in the midst of all of the craziness, finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, this is what you and I ought to want more than anything else, to find favor in the eyes of God. I love what one Bible commentator says about this story, and I read this this past week, and I was like, yeah, this is it. He, He writes, the main purpose of the story of the flood is not to show why God sent a flood. That's not the main purpose of the story. The main purpose of the story, he says, is rather to show why God chose to save Noah. It's not about why God sent the flood. It's about what was, it, what was there about Noah that God chose to save him. Noah found favor. This is what we need to spend time figuring out. What was it about Noah's life that when the rest of the world was going crazy, Noah stood alone and he caught the eye of God? I think there are four things, maybe more, but four that I want to focus on today, but four things that Noah did right that caught the eye of God. And I believe that it would be important for us, valuable to us, to take note of these four particular things as we live in a world that is drawing closer and closer and closer to the kind of world that Noah lived in. Well, the first thing that Noah did right is that Noah obeyed God. Listen, everything flows out of, um, everything that comes out of our life, everything that flows out of our lives comes either from our obedience to God or our lack of obedience to God. And if Noah's life is anything, it is a picture of a man who when everyone else was doing their own thing, when everyone else was seeking to satisfy their own desires, even though he was alone, Noah chose to be faithful to God. Verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then I love this. It says that Noah walked with God. Now, if you want to know what to do in a world gone mad, the best place to begin is simply with obedience. Be righteous and blameless in your generation. In other words, whenever you look around and you see all kinds of craziness, all of the things that have gone wrong in the world, all of the immorality and all of the disregard for God, instead of railing on the world and focusing out there, first, focus on who you are. When things seem crazy, you know, when we look around and it looks like the world, it's just going to hell in a handbasket. Instead of pointing fingers 
the first thing we need to do is check ourselves, right? Scripture says that judgment begins where? In the house of God. The first thing we do is we need to check ourselves. Focus on who you are. Way too often, you know, we have this tendency to look at other people and we judge them by their actions, but we dismiss what we do because we know our motives. Well, I didn't mean to do that. That's not what I meant. I didn't, I didn't want for that to happen. I didn't intend for that to happen. The, the story tells us that God, he knows not only our actions, but he also knows our motives, In fact, he he knows our motives better than we do. So here's the question I ought to ask myself. And it's the question that you ought to ask yourself. And that is, am I living a life myself that is righteous and blameless? I don't know what you think of when you hear that word righteous. I don't know what image comes in your mind when you hear that word But I think our tendency is to think in terms of, you know, we're righteous because of these are the things we don't do. In order to be righteous, you have to don't do these things. You know, I I don't drink, I don't use profanity, I don't do drugs, I don't watch dirty movies. And so because those are the things I don't do, then that must mean that I'm righteous. Listen. I want you to understand this. The biblical concept of righteousness, while it certainly does involve staying away from certain immoral behaviors, I want you to understand that righteousness is way more about what we do rather than than what we don't do. And even more than that, it's about who we are. In fact, true biblical righteousness It's all about living into who we were created to be. It's about allowing the goodness and the kindness and the rightness of God to be lived out in our day-to-day lives. In fact, that leads us to the the second thing that Noah did. The, The only reason it could be said of him that he was righteous and blameless is because number two, Noah walked with God. I love that statement about him, that Noah walked with God. In other words, it goes all the way back to this relationship thing. You you see, no matter how hard we try, the truth is we can't be righteous on our own. We we can't be blameless on our own. The the only way to be righteous, it it happens, is we we have to have the, the kind of relationship with God that he designed for us to have. This is how righteousness happens. We have to walk with him. We have to follow his lead. This is why Jesus' invitation to us is always, come follow me. Come walk with me. Come learn from me. And then as you do, become like me. You see, it's not our righteousness. In fact, Isaiah 64 says that our righteousness is nothing. It's like filthy rags. But I want you to understand, you see, one of the things that Jesus did on the cross is that he not only took our sins and he placed that upon himself, Paul says that he took his righteousness, his right standing with God, his purity, his virtue, his holiness, his rightness, 
and he placed that upon us. You see, if we even want to have a shot at righteousness, which by the way, Hebrews 12.4 says that without righteousness, without holiness, it is impossible to see God. If that's what we want, it's important for us to ask ourselves at the core of, of who I am, am I a person who is allowing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be lived out in me? And the answer to that question, it, it, rather than being philosophical, you know, kind of pie in the sky, I think it ought to be a very practical answer. We ought to look at this very practically. Because Jesus says that the fruit of our lives, in other words, how we live our lives, how other people see us, is always going to be reflective of the root. The fruit always reflects the root. He said a good tree it's impossible for a good tree to produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And so our lives ought to be judged by the fruit that we produce. The fruit reveals the root. In other words, if I'm rooted in Jesus, if I'm pursuing Jesus, if I'm walking with Jesus, then Jesus ought to be reflected in the way that I live my life. When people look at me, when they look at you, they ought to go, wow, you, you just kind of look like Jesus. I mean, what you did, that's kind of what Jesus might do. The way you treat people, that's the way uh, that, that Jesus would treat people. The way you love others, the way you give yourself away in such a selfless way, that just kind of looks like Jesus. I was thinking about that, and, and I, I was reminded that the very first time I took a trip to Africa, I was in Sierra Leone. We'd gone there right at the, in the middle of the war that was taking place there, and there was damage everywhere. And we went, and, and I went over, I was young, I had no clue what I was doing, but one of the things I did is I filled my pockets with Jolly Rancher candy. And so everywhere we went, there were kids everywhere, and I would pass out candy. I got to be known as the candy man. And one day, I'll never forget, the greatest compliment I've ever got in my life came from a 12-year-old African boy. We were walking along, and this little boy, he had followed us everywhere, and he had watched as our medical teams had served those who, who had been damaged by the rebels, who had had arms cut off and legs cut off and all kinds of stuff, and our medical teams treated them, and we had taken and we had brought vaccinations for children and brought food, and we were just trying to serve the people the best way that we knew how. And this little boy had watched that, and one day we're walking walking along and he looked up at me and he said are you Jesus and I said no I'm not Jesus and he said well, you sure look like Jesus to me man that's the way we ought to live our lives I wish I could tell you that that I have that response all the time the reality is that's not true but we ought to strive for that that when people look at us they go man you just look like Jesus to me and so let's get real practical Am I a person who gives priority to God in every area of my life? Or instead, is the fruit that my life produces, does that reflect that I'm more concerned about what I want or what people think of me instead of what God wants and what God thinks? Am I someone who displays the love of Christ? Am I, am I willing to give myself away and sacrifice in order to serve others? Or is it all about me? 
Am I, am I a person who justifies my own issues and at the same time throws stones at other people for what they do? Or do I recognize and do I acknowledge the shortcomings in my life and continually take those and lay them before Jesus, trusting that he's going to help me as I follow him? And then ultimately, am I a person who is simply striving to be like Jesus? Or am I more concerned with something else? You see, this gets really practical. We, we make righteousness this big theological thing that's out there that's unattainable, but it gets really practical. And we have to start here in our own life. What am I doing here? I mean, we realize that the world is way out of order, but we have to start with ourselves. Noah was righteous and was blameless, and Noah walked with God. Number three, Noah took care of his family. Well, one of the things that Noah did right in the midst of a world that has gone crazy is that Noah was intentional about taking care of his family. In verse 10, it says this, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I think this is really, really interesting because God could have noted a lot of things about Noah. You know, he says that Noah is righteous and blameless. Noah walked with me. And he could have said, and Noah was a really good boat builder. Oh, he doesn't say that, right? Or, or he could have said that, you know, Noah, he had three awesome businesses. Or, or Noah had three impressive awards that he earned. You know, he was like salesman of the month. He was shipbuilder of the year. And he was, he was like the nation's top recruiter of zoological animals. There's a lot of things that could have been said about Noah. And the truth is there's a lot of things that could be said about us. But I think it's interesting that God highlighted this very important and very specific role that Noah had, the role of a parent. And that role, it wound up having a way more lasting impact than any other role that Noah had. Because we'll talk about this in a moment, but life and hope came through Noah's offspring. And so the thing that I think we can pull away from this is that in the midst of a world gone crazy, in the midst of this world that we're living in, don't neglect your family. Make sure you take care of your family. This is so important. Because this culture that we're living in, there is this great temptation for us to get caught up in so many other things outside of our primary role. The, the temptation is to put so many other responsibilities ahead of our primary responsibility. And I, I thought a lot about this. And one of the things that I, I think, one of the, the good things that has come out of this coronavirus and the result of being quarantined at home is that I believe it has forced many parents to reclaim their rightful role as the primary influencers of their children. Let me explain what I mean by that. We, we, we live in a culture where it's just kind of become the norm for us to send our kids out to who you know, we consider to be the experts of specific fields. And we let those experts nurture and develop 
our kids in so many ways. For, for example, you know, we, we send our kids from um, early in the morning to late in the afternoon, eight hours a day, to the educational experts, right? And, and those experts, they teach them things like math and English and science. And then when they get home from school, we send our kids to the musical experts and they teach them things like piano. And then we send them to the soccer expert or the baseball expert or the gymnastics expert to teach them athletics and on and on and on and on. And so you may be wondering, Pastor, are you against all of those things? No, not necessarily. I mean, nobody would want me to teach them things like, you know, trigonometry or piano or gymnastics, although I can still do a sick cartwheel. But, but nobody would want me to teach them those things. My point is simply this, that, um, th- and this is something that is, is really only developed in the past 40 or 50 years, but because of the amount of time that we place our kids under the influence of other people, well, we're doing other things, and our attention is upon other things. There is a danger that unknowingly we are allowing outside forces to have more of an influence in developing and nurturing our children's thinking and attitudes than we as parents do. And while this may not be a big deal, and it's probably not a big deal, you know, when it comes to piano or gymnastics, I'm telling you, It is a very big deal when that begins to bleed into other areas of life, especially when it comes to spiritual things. I'm telling you, there's a reason why that the the recent trend, and you can track it, it it coincides with this 40, 50-year period, but the recent trend is that it has gotten to the place where 70% of kids who are raised in the church walk away from the church, walk away from faith once they've graduated from high school. You see, the way that God designed it is that we as parents are the ones who are intended to be the primary influencers of the way that our children process God and faith and spirituality. And and, and as a result of that, the way that they process and interpret the world and all the things that are happening around them. And so let's not fall into the trap of thinking, you know, well, that, that is the spiritual expert's job. It's the Sunday school teacher's job or the children's pastor's job or the youth pastor's job to be the one who is responsible for producing a spiritually healthy life in the life of my son or my daughter. That is not the way that God designed it. They they do have a job to do, and we feel like it's a very important job. And their job is to support you as parents. That their job is to resource you as parents. Their job, you know, in, in maybe the hour that they have them a week, and now that this coronavirus hit, man, that's just gone totally out the window. But at best, you know, best case scenario, that may be an hour a week. Their, their job in that time is to reinforce what you are teaching at home with your children. And unfortunately, I've seen this way too often. 
And, and I just gotta be honest, you know, I did not do a great job of this. I wish that somebody had said this stuff to me, and maybe somebody did, and I wasn't listening, but I've gotten sucked into this myself. We, we don't mean to, but we ourselves as parents, we can get so involved in so many other things. Man, we are spread so thin. And we throw ourselves into things like getting ahead financially, accumulating stuff, entertaining ourselves, chasing after our own pleasures. And, and we can mistakenly throw so much of our time and our energy and our attention out there <laughs> that the people who are in our very homes get nothing but what our, our leftover time and energy. And when we're home, you know, we're, we're in a culture now where we, even when we're home, we're segregated, segregated into sitting in front of screens rather than building into each other and investing each other in each other spiritually and emotionally. And so this is one of the things, as you read this story, you, you see how Noah's life, he not only had favor with God, but that favor was extended to his family. And there was this natural connectivity there. And because Noah didn't take the attitude of, okay, God has called me to this, and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to build the ark and I'm going to do God's work, and his family was left at home, and so he's out working for God all day long, and he comes home exhausted. And all that his family gets is this leftover exhausted Noah. No, instead, his children are also involved in the plan. They're working at this thing together. And God uses not just Noah, but they're used as a family to give a new start to the world. And, 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 and if you read later on, after the ark lands on dry ground, you find out that these guys weren't perfect. Noah didn't have a perfect family, that's for sure. And he certainly wasn't perfect. But Noah still focused on his family. And because of that, God's God's uh, favor and his plan wound up extending upon Noah's children and their families as well. Uh, so I want to encourage you to take a cue from Noah. Now, while you have this great opportunity, the best investment that you can make it's better than a 401k, it's better than the best stock tip you could ever get. Be intentional and invest in the lives of your family look for opportunities to have spiritual conversations take the time to know where your kids are spiritually what are they thinking and then pray 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 ask god what are the things that you want to deposit in my children's lives right now? Give me a glimpse of what your plan for them is and how can I pray for them and then pray with them and over them. I'm telling you, 30 minutes spent praying for and over your children is a much better investment than 30 minutes watching the Tiger King. I'm telling you, it'll pay off. All right, one more and I'm done. The fourth thing that we learn from Noah's story, the fourth thing that Noah did right, is that Noah was a source of life and hope for the world. This is what he became, a source of hope and life. This is so important. 
In a world of chaos, I believe with all of my heart that we are called, we are chosen to be people who offer life and hope to the world around us. You see the progression in this story. First, there's the interior. Noah is, who are you, Noah? Who are you? And then the first thing that we do, we have to ask ourselves, you know, I have to ask myself, who am I, Doug? So first we focus on us. Who am I and what's happening in my own heart and my own life? And then number two, who am I walking with? Am I walking with God or am I chasing after something else? What have I connected myself to? Hopefully it is God that I am walking with. Are you walking with God? And then number three, who am I caring for? There's the focus on those that are immediately around me. I'm not neglecting the ones closest to me and focusing on those out there. I'm beginning here with those that I have been entrusted with and connected to. And then lastly, what am I here for? We are called, I'm telling you, to be a source of life and hope for the world. And you all know the rest of the story, right? God says to Noah, he says, go make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make some rooms in the ark and make it watertight, covered inside and outside with pitch and do all of these things. Why did God tell him to do this? Because in the midst of a world gone crazy, God wanted Noah and his family to be this source, this place of hope and new life for the world. God wanted Noah's life to shine before men so that they would see that and desire what Noah had in their own lives. And guess what, friends? God wants the same thing for you and me. We need to provide hope for people who are feeling hopeless. We need to be a place not of condemnation and judgment, but we need to be a place for a new start. This is what happens in Noah's life. There was, there was just kind of this reset when it came to Noah. God reset things, right? Just kind of reset things back to the original factory settings. And, and we, we, we'll just, you know, he just said, you know what, we're just going to restart this whole thing. And this is what happened with Noah. So in our lives and in our homes and in our families and in our community, we ought to be a place that offers a fresh start to people who are drowning. Now, of course, we know in Noah's case, God shut the door. There was that day of reckoning. God shut the door. And this new life and new hope, in, in Noah's story, it only came to those who were connected with Noah. But at the end of this story, God looks at everything that has happened and he says, you know what? I'm never going to do that again. And so he sends Christ. And through Jesus Christ, what God does is he permanently opens the door so that no matter what somebody has done, I mean, no matter how messed up and off, off track their motives might be, their actions might be, their thoughts might be, because of Jesus, there is always an opportunity for a reset. And as followers of Jesus, this is our message. Even in a world gone crazy, 
This is our message that Jesus has come and he has given us an opportunity to begin again. And so if you don't like what you see from the people around you, if you don't like what's happening in the world around you, instead of being like, you know what, I'm gonna shut my door, I'm gonna shut my windows and just pretend like they don't exist and they can all go to hell. This is where if Christ is really in us, our response ought to be that we open ourselves up and regardless of what they're doing, regardless of what they're saying about us, we do good to them. Why? Because the way to overcome evil is always with good. And so as Christians, we are to be a place where people see hope. I, I don't know about you, but I want to I wanna give hope to the marginalized. I don't know about you, but I want to give new life to those who are far from God. I, wanna, I want me and my family to be this place that is so attractive, so inviting, so intoxicating with God that people just can't resist. Okay, so here are the questions that we must answer in a world that has gone crazy. The first question, who are you? Who are you? And what are you doing with your life? Are you, are you living a life centered on Christ, allowing his righteousness to be lived out in you? Who are you? And then question number two, who are you walking with? Who, who are you following? What is it that you're really chasing after? What is it you're throwing all of your attention and your time and your energy into? Is it, is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it power? Is it financial security, recognition? Or are you chasing after Jesus? And then number three, who do you care for? Who, who is it that you care for? Are you intentional about caring for and investing in the lives of your family? I mean, when, when is the last time that you just sat down and you wrote your kids a letter. And just, you know, just to encourage them, just to tell them how much you love them and what you think of them and, and, and just to build into their lives. When's the last time that you reminded them of who God says that they are? I'm telling you, one of the biggest assaults upon our kids, really on all of us, is in the area of our identity. And the Bible is full of descriptions of who God says that we are. We need to pass those along to our kids. This is what God says about you. I'm telling you, there are so many other people that are telling them who they are and who they ought to be. And so when is the last time you said and reminded them, this is who God says that you are? And these are the great plans that God has for you. And when is the last time that you just sat down and had a spiritual conversation with your family and said, hey guys, let's just set the electronics aside for a few moments and let's just connect with each other. And then finally, what are you here for? Are you here simply to rail against people who don't look like, act like, talk like, vote like you do? Or are you here to offer hope 
and new life. Noah did what God said, and God took care of things. And then he used Noah as a restart, and hopefully we can be people that offer restarts to others as well. I'm telling you, that's what I want to be. And I pray that you do as well. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we wrap up our time together and we thank you for these incredible stories that you've given to us as we look at the lives of, again, just common people, ordinary people that you used in extraordinary ways. And today, as we've looked at the life of Noah, there have been some things that just have come to our attention. And I don't know which one of these hit home with each individual this morning. That's not my business. That's between you and them. But I pray that there was something, some takeaway, that not would cause anybody any condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But rather would be a challenge for us to rise to the occasion to be the kind of people in a world that has gone mad and crazy that you have called us to be, that you have chosen us to be, that in the end, that our lives might have purpose and meaning and that we give hope and we offer new life through you to the people we come in contact with. That's my prayer today. So be with us wherever we are this morning. And go with us throughout our week. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for worshiping with us. We want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and give Jesus permission to do the work that only he can do. If today you made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, we'd not only love to hear about it so we can celebrate with you, but we'd also love to come alongside you and help you any way we can to walk in this new life that began today. Let us know that you have made the decision to give your life to Jesus by clicking the link below. Finally, we want to remind you, if you're interested in joining our Zoom Connect group, click on the link below and you're good to go. Until next week, know that we love you, we're praying for you, and we hope you have a great week.